I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And hello again, everybody. It is Greeny. I am back and better than ever, and I could not be more thrilled to return with I'm Interested after a week's hiatus. We took a week off for election coverage, let you sort of digest everything there, and then I figured what could be better than getting back into it, diving into some long-form sports conversation. And I will tell you that when I was a little kid, my earliest recollections of sports to this day, 53 years old now, the first things I remember about sports, everyone associates me with my fandom of the New York Jets. And, of course, the Jets have been my favorite football team for a long time. But my earliest sports recollections are of my dad taking me to Madison Square Garden to see the Knicks. I will never forget as a little kid the sound of the garden, the smell, the feel of it. There was something magical about it. And if you fast forward many years, when I was in my 20s, I got my first job in the business. My real start, my first real break was covering the Bulls for a radio station in Chicago. And some of the legendary series that the Bulls played against the Knicks in the 90s. I remember one time covering a shoot-around at Madison Square Garden. It was the first time I'd ever stood on the floor at the Garden. I grew up in the seats upstairs, all the way upstairs. And it was the first time I'd ever set foot on the floor of the Garden. And so one of the teams came out and they had their shoot-around and then they had a little media availability and we did our interviews. And then the players and the coaches all left and we were waiting for the other team. And there was a rack of balls on the court. And one by one, a few of us who were reporters in Chicago at that time, I won't mention any other names in case we broke any laws so that I do not um, necessarily uh, cast dispersions on anyone. But I can tell you that a a few of us walked over and picked up some basketballs and just started shooting baskets on the floor at the Garden. And of all the thrilling moments that I've had in my career to that point, that one was right up there with anything. And I went over all the moments that I could remember. I tried the little Bernard King turnaround on the baseline and all the different experiences that I had over the years at the Garden. And then fast forward many years after that, I had the opportunity. Golick and I coached against each other, coached in the Celebrity All-Star Game at the Garden. And I wore a suit and I coached that game. I coached my heart out. We lost, but it was one of the great experiences I've ever had. So being around Madison Square Garden has always been something very special for me and to me. And my guest today is Mike Breen, who has been the voice of Knicks basketball for multiple generations now and, of course, is the primary voice of the NBA on ABC and ESPN and is about as good at broadcasting basketball games as anybody is at broadcasting anything. He's a terrific announcer and a terrific person, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation, which we will have right after I remind you I also want to let everyone know, if gambling is your thing, make sure you check out Behind the Bets podcast. Download, subscribe to Behind the Bets, and I'm interested wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, the table is set. My guest is Mike Breen, and he's coming your way in three, two, and one. All right, Mike Breen is here, and I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, You know that I have long admired your work, and, and I mean, being in New York, I just did an entire introduction about my feelings about the magical aura of Madison Square Garden, the way I felt about that all of my childhood and and even to this day, the way I feel. And you know how I feel about your work on TV. We've had many opportunities and occasions to talk about that. So welcome, Mike Breen, and thank you very much for some time. You are way, way, way too kind, Mike, Uh, but it's it's an honor to be on with you. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start at the very beginning. I, I spoke for a few minutes in the introduction about how 
My father taking me to basketball games at Madison Square Garden is actually my first recollection of sports. It's it is the oldest memory that I have. I, I, I probably can think back to games I went to when I was maybe four or five years old. I remember what the garden felt like and smelled like. I remember the names of these players who I found fascinating, like Dick Van Arsdale and all, all sorts of things from that era of basketball. What is your first recollection of basketball? Well, in terms of being there, it was way up in the in the upper deck of the garden, up in the old, you know, the blue seats, as, as they used to be called. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first recollection, because I was a Nick fan when I was a little boy. Uh, I'm from a family of, of six boys, so sports was uh, it was not an option. It was it was a requirement in the family because my dad was a was a big sports fan. But I went, and I remember being so far up, thinking, "Boy, these players aren't as tall as, <laughs> as I thought they would be," because I was so far up. But I also remember, you know, like the last minute and a half, I snuck down. Uh, with some friends and we got close and then you realize how mistaken I was by saying that um, that they weren't that tall but that that's my first recollection being up there and seeing the building and seeing the ceiling the ceiling for me was always something that uh, it just it looked like it was a a special palace uh, when you first walk in and and that that kind of never goes away I agree and and they've changed a a lot of the ways that that ceiling looks but the numbers are still in the rafters and it still is a special place. I'll tell you a quick funny story you'll appreciate because when my dad would take me when I was very little, then when I got to be a teenager, my friends and I would go. And in those days, you could buy tickets. You may remember this. You could walk up to the window 10 minutes before the game started. You could buy a ticket if you had a school ID. You could buy a ticket for $6 to sit in the blue seats. And we would send my little kid brother down at the end of the first quarter to scout out seats down near the court that we could sit in because it was never anywhere near full. And my brother was little and cute, so the ushers wouldn't chase him. And usually by the middle of the second quarter, we were in seats that these days, not quite on the court, but you're talking two or three rows off of the court, that these days these days go for thousands of dollars. And we would sit there in the second half and listen to Hubie Brown coach. I could hear his huddles. So I, th- that those I, I remember those days, and I think I learned more about basketball from listening to Hubie Brown coach the Knicks in the early 80s than from absolutely anything else. Yeah, no, I had the same experience. There was always one guy that you would send down ahead of time to see where's a spot for four people. And, you know, back then you could also, you know, if you handed the usher a little money, but when you're, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really have the kind of money where you could bribe the usher to let <laughs> you sit there for a while. So sometimes we got chased away and sometimes, you know, they just didn't care. It was the end of the game and like, I'll let the kids enjoy themselves. All right, so you're a little older than I am, so you remember a team that I don't. So the 1970 championship Knicks, who were spoken of in my household with a, a reverence that was reserved for maybe Joe Namath and 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 I, Paul Newman. <laughs> I mean, no no one else sort of ascended to that level the way the Knicks of Frazier and Reed and DeBusher and Bradley and those teams did for my parents. But again, I'm too young to remember that. You're a little older than I am. What are your recollections of that team who I think remain amongst those who are old enough, maybe the most beloved sports team in New York history? I was nine um, that year when they they won the title, but but I do have strong memories of them. And one thing I, I remember, it was really difficult to pick your favorite player because they were all special in their own way, not only as players and they were all so different, but the type of personalities they were, 
And again, they were all so different. Uh, that's what made it so, to me, remarkable and how they were all, they played so well together is you had all different backgrounds with, with these guys and all different styles of play, but they were able to harness it together. Um, you know, for me, Clyde was always always the favorite player. And ironically, you know, for me getting to first call him a partner and, and now a lifetime friend is beyond my comprehension. But the other one was Dave DeBusher. I remember I used to think when I was nine years old, I, I always thought my dad was the strongest man in the world. Well, I thought Dave DeBusher was the second strongest man in the world. That's that's the way I, I thought of as a kid. And and then there was, you know, there was something reverent about Willis Reed, not just the way he, he conducted himself, the way he carried himself, but the way the other players looked at him and looked to him for leadership. And that's something I remember. And that's something that later was confirmed. Uh, I mean, Clyde, to this day, still has a reverence for him, still calls him the captain uh, and still looks up to him to this day. And um, those are just some of the memories from that team that I remember. Yeah, I I can't explain for people who have not experienced it. I mean, so many other cities, I think they have multiple championship teams. If you're a fan of the Yankees in New York, then you, you could pick like any team you want to say that was my favorite. But for all Nick fans who are old enough, and again, I'm not, I was only three when they won it. I don't remember it. But for my parents, which is where I got my love of sports from, the way they talk about those Nick teams, there's nothing like it. There's nothing that compares all these years later in any sport to the way they talk about those teams and the way they loved those teams. These men love each other, uh, Mike. And I, I, I was um, so fortunate this summer during, you know, when the suspension of the season, everybody was looking for programming. So at MSG Network, um, they had had me do a sit down with Bradley and Frazier and Willis. Mm. And uh, during the course of it, um, you know, you just let them go. You just throw something out there. Um, and they, they express that, that emotion and how much they love each other. And, and Bill Bradley actually broke down at the end of one of the interviews because Clyde said to him, um, he said something to the effect of, you know, I, I never met, I never met Bill Bradley's mom, but um, I, I think I, I would have really, Loved her because she reminded, because my mom felt the same, you know, I had the same feelings about my mom, et cetera. He's, he's going about the mother and, and, and Bill was so taken with emotion that he got choked up and, and had to pause because it's something that they never expressed to each other about how much my mother would have loved Bill Bradley, that type of thing. Um, I'm not, I'm not expressing it as, as nearly as well as these guys did when they talked about it, but here all these years later, Mike, uh, they still have these unbelievable emotions for each other and, and the strong memories of, of what they went through together. And Well, I can tell you this, that Clyde and I then have that in common because my mother wanted me to be Bill Bradley. <laughs> that, that is who, that, when I was a little kid, I cannot begin to tell you, in the same way that George Costanza's mother said, why can't you be more like Lloyd Braun? I was supposed to be more like Bill Bradley. That that I got very used to. Okay, so let, let's go a little bit through your life and career, and, and then we will spend most of this conversation talking about the games that you call now. But but let me just start with this. I find it fascinating and always have, for those who are not listening to this conversation in New York or may not be familiar with this, Michael Kay, who is the longtime voice of New York Yankees baseball in New York, going back maybe 20 years now, um, and, and hosts afternoons on the local ESPN radio station and is a longstanding friend of mine. But you and Kay have been friends since college. You were in college at the same time. Tell me about how you met Michael Kay and what in the world are the odds 
that the two of you would have met in college, been friends in college, and now have had the lives and the careers that you have had that have run parallel in this fascinating way? I, I could talk about him all day. We've been best friends for over 40 years. Um, and um, you know, there was at one point when we were students at Fordham, we, we would sit around in the in the cafeteria at Rose Hill in the Bronx. And, you know, my dream, I would say, yeah, someday I'd love to be the Nick announcer. And he would say, someday I'd love to be the Yankee announcer. And then we'd laugh and look at each other like, look at these two fools thinking thinking something like that might happen. Um, so it's just, um, it, it's incredibly humbling and hard to believe that it came true. But it, for me, it may not have come true if it wasn't for him. So so I walk into, uh, I walked into the college radio station as a freshman and he was a sophomore. And I was really intimidated. You've got all these college students, they've been doing their, their college radio and they're confident and, and sure of themselves. And I was a pretty shy, introverted kid uh, back then. And so I was really intimidated and I was having trouble making friends in terms of, you know, connecting with some of the people. And you'd go to these workshops and there'd be a ton of freshmen in there and uh, you feel like you weren't even part of it for me. And then um, one day I walked in and there's this guy and he's having this he's having this yelling match with uh, a woman who's also with the station. And it's it's Kay. I didn't know it at the time. And he's telling he's yelling at her. I know you want me. I can tell you, I can see it in your eyes. You want me. <laughs> and the woman is saying back to him, if you were the last man on earth, I wouldn't want you. And he's doing it, you know, tongue in cheek and having fun. And he made me laugh so hard that I said, you know what? I got to I got to saddle up to this guy and meet him. And um, I went up to him and, and right away, not only did he befriend me, but he introduced me to seven other people who were in the station and, <laughs> And would take me along, and and I not that I was on the verge of quitting, but I was a little, uh, I was a little down about the experience. I, I felt like I was out of my league, and because of meeting him and him bringing me into the fold and with his his inner circle, uh, it completely changed my experience there. So in, in many ways, who knows if I didn't meet meet him that day, but. Ever since then, we've been uh, we've been great, great pals. You really are in that regard. Then so different because um, if, if however intro, whatever the opposite, of, I understand that extroverted is the int, the opposite of introverted. But whatever the opposite of a shy, retiring person is, that's what Michael is, and I have to believe he has been that all of his life. Oh yeah, that's well, that's the beauty of it, and he's he has never changed. Yeah, despite all the success. Um, he's just, he's the same person he was back then. He's just, he's got this charismatic personality and we all knew back then that, that he was going to be a great broadcaster. We didn't know if he was going to be a talk show host. We didn't know play by play or a reporter. We just knew that he was going to be a smashing success. All of us felt that way back then. All right. What was the first NBA game you ever broadcast? <laughs> the first game I ever broadcast, I was, I, for the NBA was a backup radio for the Nets. And I was by myself, um, and they didn't have an analyst. So um, I had to fly to Cleveland, and I uh, – no, I was actually Indiana, excuse me. And, I, again, so nervous. I didn't know what to do. Um, the trainer told me at the time, hey, just you know, be on the bus at this point. So I go and I, I get on the bus, and Bill Fitch is the coach, and he's sitting in the first row. And as I walk past him, he's, he says, hello. He goes, uh, uh, are you doing the radio tonight? I said, yes, coach. And he goes, sit down. And he made me sit next to him. And he says, uh, he goes, you know, I listened to you on Imus. I love that show. You're really good on that show. And that completely, again, put me at ease. We spent the whole time 
talking about uh, the Imus in the morning program on the way to the arena. I did the game. I, I'm sure I was horrible because was, I think it was the first time I ever did a game without an analyst. Uh, but that was the very first NBA game I ever broadcast. And what year was that, Mike? Oh, <sighs> that's going to be hard to remember. I'm, I'm the worst at those. See, that fascinates uh, I started me. doing that. If you asked me start- dates of anything I did for the first time in my career, in my life, I could tell you immediately. I might be able to tell you the day. <laughs> I could probably tell you the day of the week. That that's a fascinating thing to me that you don't even that you don't remember what year it was you did your first game. I know it was um, my first Nick game. The first season I did the Knicks was the ninety two ninety three season, mm-hmm. and it was a couple of years before that. So I'm going to say nineteen ninety. 1990-ish, and you were doing I Miss in the Morning, which I remember you on there very vividly, and you were extraordinarily funny. And and so that's how you just happened to become the basketball guy. They, they had an opening one night and said, here, why don't we let the funny guy from who does the sports on I Miss in the Morning do the basketball game? No, it was it was there was kind of because Sports Channel uh, at the time was was covering uh, net games. And I was working for Sports Channel. I was an anchor for Sports Channel, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of a, a tie in there. And that's how I got put into that to do. And it was just that one time. I did one game. That was it. And, and so the 92-93 is the first year that you're doing the Knicks. So 92-93 is a year that I remember vividly because I I grew up in New York City. But then I went to college outside of Chicago. And I, I started my career covering the Bulls for seven years. So I was with covering the Bulls in the and during that series, the, those series, the '93 series between the Knicks and the Bulls, which the Bulls ultimately win in six. It starts out with the Knicks winning the first two games. The whole episode where Jordan goes to Atlantic City and people are talking about it, and he stops talking to the media because he's furious. And the Bulls, they win games three and four. And then game five is the Charles Smith game and everything else. I, I consider that to be one of the most dramatic playoff series I've I've ever seen in my life. What do you remember about it? Well, you, you remember the Starks dunk in, mm-hmm. in game two. Game two. Uh, you certainly you remember the, the, the Charles Smith three chances right there. Um, and just the, how deflated the garden was. Uh, that's that's the first time I ever felt like, a, uh, you know, you hear the phrase of taking the air out of a building. That was, it was incredible. The place it was on a fever pitch, a chance to go up 3-2. They actually had a better record than them than they did during the regular season than, than they did over the Bulls. Um, it just was um, it was one of the most exciting, but one of the most heart wrenching and gut wrenching series ever to lose that series. And you had the feeling, even though you know this was a great mentally tough team um, after that game five. You're thinking there's just no way they can go to Chicago and win that game. That was the feeling that everybody had walking out of the room. The players will probably deny it. They probably did feel that way, but uh, everybody else said, well, there goes our chances right there. I I will never forget that experience because, again, I'm a kid from New York, so my parents, my family are crazy Nick fans. My parents have a store. They have a Go New York, Go New York, Go sign in the window of their store, but I'm covering for a Chicago radio station. I've been there for years. I'm taking calls from Chicago listeners like crazy, and what I learned about that, and I'm sure it's something you've learned all the way through, is that no matter where I was, the, the, the every fan thought the announcers were rooting for the other team. The, the Chicago fans absolutely thought the announcers were rooting for the Knicks, and the New York fans absolutely thought that the, fan, the the announcers were rooting for the Bulls. And that's something that I've talked to Marv about over the years, and I assume this is something you experienced. Every, te- every team's fans always think you're rooting for the other team, right? 
it ha- especially as, as the playoffs <laughs> the playoffs go deeper, Mike. It's incredible, uh, and that's I, I think that's when you know you're 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 playing it down the middle, because you know whether it's Golden State, Cleveland, or Boston, LA, uh, it's the same thing every year. And you walk into the arena, and they yell at you like, "Can you stop rooting for the Lakers <laughs> when you're when you're walking into the Boston Garden?" And they really feel that. And a lot of that has to do with. Um, you know, one, one of the things it sounds like usually the home team in many cases, that's where the announcer sounds like he's rooting for the home team because the crowd is so fired up and so loud, you have to raise your voice more. So if I'm doing a, a, a Celtic game, a Celtics Lakers in the finals and it's at the Boston guard, my, my intensity calls are higher up at the Boston guard when the Celtics are playing well, just because the crowd. When the Lakers all of a sudden make some big plays at the Boston Garden, well, the crowd isn't screaming, so you don't have to push it as much. And I think that's part of why uh, the fans feel that way. And I think the other thing is is simply because, you know, often you're just you're not used to hearing announcers be critical of your team. And on a national level, sometimes that has to happen. Okay, so when I told people that I was having you on the podcast, I cannot count for you the number of people who said you have to ask them where bang comes from. So where does, when someone hits a big shot and you yell bang, where did that come from? It's it's not any, there's no great story behind it. It actually started when I was a student at Fordham. And when we weren't broadcasting the games, like maybe during the course of a year, I maybe did six or seven games and that was it, especially when you're an underclassman. But we would would drive, there'd be about five or six of us, including often Michael Kay, uh, including um, uh, our great friend Bob Rinaldi, who is Tom Rinaldi's older brother. Mm. I, I remember going to my friend Bob Rinaldi's house when I was in college, and there was his little brother, Tom. I've known him since he was 12 years old. Mm. So we would go to these games all the time and sit in the stands and cheer for your college team, like everybody does, whether you go to football or basketball. And we'd go nuts. And any time a Fordham player would hit a shot while I was cheering in the stands, I started yelling out, bang, from an outside shot. And then I tried using it on the air when I was broadcasting some of the Fordham games. And I, I actually didn't like the way it, it came out and I stopped using it. And I didn't really start it again until I started doing TV. And what I found was in those big moments, again, using the crowd, when the crowd is at its highest level, uh, it, it's hard for a lot of announcers to override the crowd. You want to use the crowd to kind of enhance your call. And I always felt in those moments, the shorter the call, the better. And what's better than a one-syllable word like bang? And I, I used it a few times in a big moment when the crowd's going crazy, and I just liked the way I was able to say it and then let the crowd kind of take over. And um, that's how it started. And it has become your signature, obviously, and it's very recognizable. But it did occur to me as I was putting some notes together for this conversation, among in, in the minds of the wrong people, and I'm not in any way suggesting that you would think this, but some people, they'll attach a double entendre kind of a connotation. So do people yell like crazy bang references at you from time to time, things you have to ignore and walk away from smiling? No, no, not really. <laughs> they ask me often to, to, to shout, you know, and they, people want to take a, a, a picture. Instead of taking a picture, they, they want me to say bang to them on the, on the phone mm-hmm. all the time. I get that once in a while. But I actually wasn't, the, and, and I didn't find this out till later after I started using it. I was doing a Celtic series. And uh, Jamie Most is the son of the great Johnny Most. And um, he got word to me that his dad used to use bang every once in a while. It wasn't like a signature call, and I don't think he used it a lot. But he did use it quite a bit. And, you know, back in the day, 
nobody ever heard what the out-of-town radio announcers did. So uh, not that I stole it from Johnny Most, but he did use it. And there were a couple of other guys that I found out later after I, I started using it on the national stage uh, that told me they used it. So I'm not the first one to do it, but I'm fortunate that it's it's it served me well. There was a great moment in this year's playoffs. I talked about it on my radio show, and I actually had you on to talk about it. Luka Doncic hit an unbelievable shot to win a playoff game, and you gave him the ultra-rare double bang. You yelled bang, and then you yelled bang again. And my question is, was that something, how, how did that come about? Does that just come out of your mouth spontaneously, or is it something you gave some thought to? Is, is, has anything else ever reached that level? No, that, that's, Mike, that's when it just, when you lose it as a fan, you see something unexpected, um, that just comes out. And, and sometimes it sounds good, and sometimes you sound like a screaming fool. Um, but it's, that's, and I, and I hope I'll never lose that. That's just the fan in me. Um, yeah, I, I just, I've ever since I was a little boy, like I said, rooting for the Knicks, I, I'm such a crazy basketball fan. Like I go crazy watching games at home when I'm sitting on my, on my couch, watching a league pass, uh, and in college. And, and I still try and in my neighborhood, I try to go to high school playoff games if I, if I can on an off day Mm. and I still get fired up when I see a great play. So a play like that by a young man who was playing at such a level. It was, you know, the accumulation of his incredible game and this big stakes and what, what he's doing. It just, um, you just get overcome with, uh, with excitement. And I'm glad I'm still able to do that after all these years. I love the enthusiasm. I think that's great. And, and, and I feel much the same way. I still get disproportionately excited at great moments in sports. And I always figure even for all these years, if I ever stop feeling that way, well, when I'll start would be when I would start considering not doing this anymore, but I, I still feel it as much as I ever have. Okay, let's talk about the game. The game has changed so much. In your opinion, what has been the most significant actual structural change that you've seen in basketball? Because like you, I'm sure you do as I do, you watch old games sometimes and you realize just how different the style of play is now. It's like a totally different game than the Knicks and Bulls series we were talking about a few minutes ago. What's been the most significant change? Well, the change of, of making it more difficult for the defense where, you know, uh, allowing players freedom of movement, which quite honestly is better in terms of watching for the beauty of the game, um, but it made it so much easier on, on the offense uh, where it's, it's very tough to play physical defense in today's NBA. And that certainly gives a big advantage to the offense. So that's, that's one area, but, but the three point shot has completely changed everything. It's, it's not only changed the way the game is played on a nightly basis, it's, it's, it's changed the way um, teams scout players. It's changed the way players develop, not just when they get to the NBA, when, but when they're back in their elementary schools and AAU programs and high schools. Um, and it's completely changed what skill level you want from your big men, what skill level you have to have from, from your guards, from your perimeter pl- people. Um, the three-point shot is... It's incredible and how it has changed so many various aspects from scouting to player development to the way the games are actually played. And yes, it is exciting, um, but I, I, I so miss uh, some of the ball movement, some of the in and out uh, type of offense in terms of using the low post. And I, I keep maintaining this throughout, Mike, and I'm kind of going on here a little too long, but um, look at who are the two of the most lethal scorers in the game today, Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard. Their mid-range game are absolutely just just 
pure lethal. And I, and I think that, you know, while so many players count on the three and the analytics show that the three is good, um, I do think sometimes it hurts the game in terms of how it's played and how it's viewed from, from a fan standpoint. Sometimes it's, it's hard to watch when guys are just coming down and jacking up threes and bad shots. And guys take shots all the time that 10 years ago, they'd be taken out of the game mm -hmm. for taking a shot like that. Now, unbelievable credit to the players. Uh, because they've developed range that's incredible, and their percentages from these range, uh, uh, various ranges are incredible. Um, but I do think that uh, I hope it doesn't get too crazy because um, I, I like to see the balance of the inside game and the outside game. No, I'm with you completely, and, and and I can still hear my father, who's no longer with us, but I right now he is applauding what you just said because I can still hear his voice saying to me, as he only he could, Michael, the objective of the game is to try and work the ball around until you get the best possible shot as close to the basket as possible, not as far away. So I wonder, do you think there is a pendulum that swings back on that? Have, have we seen the last of the dominant big men who sets up on the block and has Akeem Olajuwon's footwork or Shaquille O'Neal's um, power game? At, 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 have we seen the last of that in basketball? No, I, I don't think so because it, it goes in cycles. It, it usually comes back um, – there's going to be some some just absolute behemoth beast who's going to come onto the scene, who's going to be seven feet tall, and it's going to dominate down low, and that's going to be the main focus of his team's offense, and they're going to win a lot of games, and then other teams are going to look for that next guy. Um, so it does go in cycles. But um, the three-point shot is, is certainly here to stay, and big men are, are, are certainly more, you know, they're working on it more than they ever have. But I do think we'll get back to it at some point because, you know, even if you look look at some of the teams that, that have won recently, you can say all you want about like the Warriors and their three-point shooting has been spectacular. But their ball movement and they're moving without the ball and their ability to get layups, uh, and as I mentioned, whether it's Durant or Clay Thompson, the mid-range game, uh, it's still prevalent in, in terms of winning the whole thing. And other teams, the Lakers this year, too, um, the same thing. It wasn't all three-point shooting. So if you want to have the ultimate success, you have to find a way to balance it and, and play both ways. Yeah, I agree. And the Warriors were a team that never bothered me because their ball movement is a thing of beauty. Okay, before I let you go, I, I, I put this together. Just you have been broadcasting the NBA now going back to the 90s, and certainly you've been the preeminent voice of the sport for the last 20 years or thereabouts. So I'm just going to go through a bunch of different players, and you just tell me your first thought that comes to mind, like maybe a game that you called or a memory that you have or whatever whatever thought that it might be um, here as we go through some of the players who've been the great players of that era that you have been calling these games. And, and let's start with Kobe, whom we lost this year um, in, in a, a tragedy that I think still resonates and still for so many of us is impossible to believe. But when you think about him as a player, what, what is the first thought that comes to your mind? Um, work ethic. And then the other thing that has to go with it is just the joy of competition. Um, th those two things for him, that's, that's what comes to mind because he was as great as he was because he worked harder than anybody. But even with all the, the shine, he still played, he had just joy of playing the game of basketball. How about Shaq? He's the most dominant in my years calling the game. He's the most dominant player I've ever seen. Um, and that's when I, you know, it's funny when you asked me that other question about, Will we ever see another low post player? That's who I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. There'll be another Shaq will come along. Maybe not, you know, the same thing, but 
there's going to be another one to come along like him. But he was the most dominant player that, that I've, in my years, calling the game. How about Physically Tim, dominant. Yeah, oh, for sure. How, how about Tim Duncan? One of my all-time favorite players um, because of his ability to do it at both ends and the way he never embarrassed a teammate or an opponent, how he carried himself on and off the court. Um, just He wanted to step on his opponent's throat as much as the next guy but never taunted anyone and never embarrassed anyone he was playing against. Let's work our way now to some of the current stars. How about Steph Curry? Um, as dynamic a shooter as the game has ever seen, will go down as the best shooter of all time. And just um, his ability to, at his size, um, I think that's what made him such a popular player because he looked like a guy that you'd see in a pickup game when you went to the park on a Saturday morning because of how, how thin he was and, he looks small, but um, maybe the the best pure shooter to ever play the game. I, I can tell you, I agree with what you're saying. I, I have a son who is now almost 18 years old, but but his sort of teenage years, and he was a basketball player all of his young life. His teenage years were spent during this this era, the heyday of Steph Curry, and Steph is by far the most popular player amongst those kids. Like amongst all the kids, at least my little tiny sample size of my son and his friends, there are more Steph jerseys in that group than everybody else combined. And I think it's for that reason. It's because they can't do a lot of the things that a lot of the other stars can do, but they all want to shoot threes. All right, let's save the best for last, and that would be LeBron. When when you when someone asks you someday what it was like to to be the voice of all these games when LeBron was winning all these titles, what will you tell them? Uh, I tell them it was an it was an honor and a privilege to call his games um, because his bottom line was was to win. It always was to win. It wasn't to put up the best numbers. Um, he wanted to win every single night. And you know, I, I don't get into who's the greatest of all time. I, I've said this many times to, to compare errors is a fruitless task. Uh, but I think when all is said and done, uh, he takes a backseat to Noah. All right. And then a final thought and, and Mike Breen, I so appreciate you taking this time with me, but I've seen announcements now of when the new season is going to begin. We're obviously coming off this um, unprecedented and I think extraordinarily successful, um, you know, year in the bubble where you guys were all there and we've talked about that. And now we, in these uncertain times, we look ahead to what next season is. What is your best guess of what next season in the NBA is going to look like? Well, I, I think it clearly is going to start without fans. Um, but that's my that's my number one hope, Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if, if anything I learned from the bubble, and anything I've learned from you know being a sports nut and watching games on TV, whether it's football or baseball, is we need the fans and the stands back so badly. It is is such a major part of why we love watching, why we love going. Um, Yeah, we're there for the athletes, and they're extraordinary, but the fans are so important. And I'm hoping at some point this season we're going to get fans back in the stands. Uh, So that's my optimistic outlook, that we'll get fans back in the stands, not to start, but I think at some point we're going to get them back in, and then everything will seem uh, pretty normal when it comes to watching sports. I hope you're right. And, and I mean, for any number of reasons – I hope you were right. Mike, I, I, you know how much I admire your work and you, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think people will enjoy hearing you 
recollect about all of these games that you've called and these players that you've seen, and I hope this is just the beginning. Um, you and I are much too young to be thinking about the end. I hope 20 years from now we can have this conversation again, and you're still doing the games, and I'm still sitting here trying to keep people entertained and informed. So this was a pleasure. Thank you very much for doing it. Um, the best to you and to your family, and I look forward to seeing you back as soon as the games start again. Uh, I'm honored that you had me on, Mike, and, and I can't thank you enough for the kind words. And so that's my conversation with Mike Breen. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. He is one of the terrific people in our business and one of the great announcers that the sport has ever had. If you like these sort of long-form interview podcasts, please let me know. You can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you do your podcasts. That'll be your signal to me and to the people that I work for that you'd like us to continue. We have a few more interviews planned for this season, then we'll take a break. And if we're going to continue this, we're going to do it because you like it. So if you would subscribe to this podcast, if you would give us a rating and a review, that would be your way of letting me know, yes, Greeny, I want you to continue doing this, because if you want me to, I definitely will. With that, I say thank you so much for being with me this week. I'm Greeny, and I'm interested.